Hello and welcome to The Eco Chamber, a podcast brought to you by the team from the environmental policy magazine, The Ends Report. I'm Shosha Aidy and today we'll be talking about an environment agency shake-up that was described to ENDS as rearranging the deck shares on the Titanic, the autumn budget bits that impact environmental policy, and the document leak that revealed that the COP28 lead planned to use the climate summit to make energy deals. Also, make sure to stick around for our deep dive as we'll be chatting to FIDRA's Heather McFarlane, who's just come back from the UN Plastics Treaty Summit and has some alarming insights on the state of chemical regulation in the UK. So without further ado, let's enter the Eco Chamber. For our Big Green News section today, ENDS News Editor Pippa Neal and Features Editor Tess Colley are here to bring us the latest headlines and scoops. On the subject of scoops, for our first story, we have an ENDS exclusive on how the Environment Agency is planning to take a far narrower approach to regulation in a major reorganisation of its work. Pippa, you broke this story. Can you tell me what the new approach is and how you found out? So under the current regulatory regime, the Environment Agency takes what it calls a place-based approach. So this basically means that groups of officers are responsible for regulating a range of different sites in a given area. However, as part of its Strength in Places programme, the agency is planning what insiders have described as a major reorganisation of its regulatory work, so that the focus is instead on sector-based regulation rather than this place-based regulation. So from kind of my understandings, from speaking with multiple insiders from within the Environment Agency, these changes will mean the creation of smaller national or regional teams, which will work on regulating specific types of sites rather than localised area-based teams who regulate a range of different sites. Um, But from my conversations with a range of different insiders, These proposals have gone down with staff like a lead balloon, one person told me. Um, And people have basically kind of said that by moving to this sector-based approach, it could impact the effectiveness of the regulator. That's quite concerning. Do we know why the Environment Agency is considering this? Well, I think part of it is we know we've been talking for years now about kind of the problems that the Environment Agency has when it comes to regulating sites. And I think... The intention behind this is to kind of improve its regulation. But another key aspect of the plans is to kind of improve their recruitment drive across the Environment Agency, something, again, that we've been talking about for a long time that is an ongoing problem within the Environment Agency. According to multiple sources that I spoke to, part of this plan is that by compartmentalising the work, it will allow money to be used for market forces factors in areas of political concern. And so for those of us who don't know what market forces factors are, how would you describe them? It's basically an estimate of the unavoidable cost differences for officers based on their geographical location. So it's used to adjust resource allocation so that specific areas are neither advantaged nor disadvantaged based on the kind of relative level of unavoidable costs in that area. Okay, that makes sense because there's sort of different living costs for different places. Um, but how does how does that actually work out in practice? Well, I guess this is the problem because the people who I've spoken to have basically just said to me that this is an attempt of just robbing Peter to pay Paul. Like it doesn't really make any difference. You're just kind of moving resources to different areas that are 
they described as being embarrassing for the environment agency. So if they have a particular area where they're really struggling to recruit and that that's a political concern for them, they could kind of move resources into that area. The union also described this approach as as being at best a sticking plaster. And Ben Middleton, Prospect National Secretary, described the programme as basically just an attempt to do more with less because it has the effect of addressing shortages in one place by creating them in another. Um, Hilda Palmer from the Hazards Campaign, which is a network of campaigners supporting health and safety regulation at work, described this as an example of rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. That's such a good metaphor, isn't Mm. it? A strong metaphor, at least. Yeah, she made another good metaphor, which I, I particularly liked, where she said that the regulators are paid so poorly in comparison to the sites that they regulate that the agency can't recruit people, with these companies turning the gamekeepers into poachers. That is a strong, a strong phrase there as well. Um, and, you know, given these strong sentiments surrounding it, are the EA engaging with staff? Is it possible that they might, you know, rip up these plans and start again? Well, I think that's kind of the crux of why so many staff members are so angry, because it doesn't really, from from what I understand, it doesn't really feel like the Environment Agency is willing to kind of go go back to the drawing board. Um, One source told me that the EA have got themselves in a bit of a pickle because they clearly weren't expecting the level of negative feedback they received. However, I understand that the intention is still to launch these reforms in April next year. But the Environment Agency did emphasise to me that the plan is a work in progress and that no final decisions have been taken. And they highlighted that an area-based model will remain for much of its regulatory efforts and that any information which has been shared externally before this point should not be considered official. Interesting. So that will definitely be one that we'll have our eye on. Moving on, last week, um, just as we published the Ecotomer podcast episode, actually, um, Chancellor Jeremy Hunt gave his autumn statement. Um, Tess, what are some of the key takeaways well, I think one of the the big ones in terms of the environment is that Jeremy Hunt pledged to make 110 million pounds available through uh, a local nutrient mitigation fund, which he said would unblock 40,000 homes. Um, where that number comes from, apparently, it's just internal Department of Leveling Up mm. uh, calculations. So, not sure what those calculations were, but um, it's quite interesting given that the last few months we've seen the government trying to get rid of nutrient neutrality. Uh, requirements. And there's all this talk about there being maybe a second nutrient neutrality scrapping uh, bill in the King's speech that did not emerge. Uh, and they're actually giving more money to make mitigation work. Interesting. So that's gone down actually pretty well with green groups. Do we think that's an indication that maybe they won't be scrapping the scheme or is it too early to tell? Oh, well, I think it's a pretty strong indication that they uh, maybe have decided that, you know, this is not the hill they're going to die on in this parliamentary <laughs> session. Another um, good metaphor. <laughs> so I think it it means they're not they're not putting any weight behind it. It doesn't mean they couldn't bring something forward or do something else. Uh maybe we've got the Retained EU Law Act obviously going to be passed in the new year and that, you know, contains all sorts of powers to scrap EU derived legislation and case law. So that's a whole other way that mutual neutrality and other environmental regulations could be impacted. I've gone off topic there. Um, <laughs> In terms of planning as well, were there other sort of updates from, from the statement on that? Yes, there were. So Hunt announced plans to allow local authorities to recover the full costs of major business planning applications. 
And we also got an indication from Hunt that the government uh, will be issuing stronger guidance on its growth duty and on extending it so it applies to regulators such as Ofgem and Ofwat. And that was mooted back in, in August. So, yeah, quite a few things. The, the planning stuff, interesting. There is also sort of what we've heard before, that they want to make planning go faster and quicker. Mm. Um, the idea that they would make local councils potentially uh, pay, basically, if pay for not getting planning applications through quick enough is quite interesting. That, you know, has not gone down particularly well with all the very stretched local planning authorities. Yeah, because only so fast you can go. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, local planning authorities have been calling out for more resourcing for ages, particularly, never mind just with all the new um, environmental things coming forward, like biodiversity net gain, so that, you know, they don't have enough ecologists to really get that on properly. Mm. So who knows how this this will go down. Um, but in there are some other energy updates as well. Can you give me a rough overview? I knew there was a lot of um, energy policy ones because they they also published some national policy statements alongside it, didn't they? But what are sort of the key headlines from that? Well, so the Chancellor said he'd be extending the critical national priority designation for uh, nationally significant low carbon energy projects and confirmed a plan to reform the time it takes for clean energy businesses to access the electricity grid. Uh, so was that any horses and ministers would also consult on introducing new permitted development rights to end basically blanket restrictions on heat pumps one meter from a property boundary in England. Um, so those were some of some of the, the bigger takeaways. What about the reaction then to some of these updates? Because it seems like quite a mixed bag. Yeah, there's 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 been a fair mix of reactions, but NGOs aren't really very happy at all. Friends of the Earth has expressed disappointment. Uh, to put it mildly, that there was nothing in there on insulating homes and accused the government of giving more handouts to the fossil fuel industry. Uh, and there's a wider disappointment from kind of uh, environmental and kind of nature focused green groups that they're just really, I mean, you got the, they were pleased about the neutrality stuff, but, you know, there's nothing else on the environment mm. really there for them. Pippa, I understand in the budget, it was also announced that the plastic packaging tax, which came into effect last year, um, is actually set to increase from next year. Can you tell me a bit more about that? So from the 1st of April 2024, the government announced that it will increase the rate of the plastic packaging tax to bring it in line with the consumer price index. So this will see it be increased from £210.82 pence per tonne to £217.85 pence per tonne, which is a 3.3% increase. Um, and just in case listeners aren't familiar with what the plastic packaging tax is, it basically is a tax payable by UK businesses which manufacture or import 10 tonnes or more of plastic packaging a year. And producers currently have to pay this tax if their packaging doesn't contain at least 30% recycled plastic. Interesting. I understand this sort of tax came in as part of measures to sort of cut our reliance on plastic. I mean, what what has the reception been? Yeah, so interestingly, um, Jacob Haler, who's the executive director of the Environmental Services Association, which basically represents wa- the waste industry, said that this doesn't go far enough. And they're actually calling for a strong plastic tax escalator of up to £500 per tonne, with a minimum recycled content threshold of 50%. So it's quite interesting that the waste industry is actually calling for the, the government to go even further. And he basically said that, you know, with the government's ambition to achieve a 65% municipal recycling rate by 2035, and with plans to include energy from waste and incineration within the emissions trading scheme, this will increase the supply of recycled plastic onto the market, but that this must be met with demand side measures. 
So yeah, it's quite an interesting one, something we'll be looking at a bit more on ENDS. Are there any other sort of statements in in the budget to do with waste that are worth noting here? Yeah, there was one more. So the government also announced that it is launching a £78 million competitive pilot fund to alleviate the costs of landfill tax, where it is acting as a barrier to the remediation and redevelopment of contaminated land. So the budget was last week, but the COP28 summit is set to kick off this week um, for a fortnight of fraught talks on combating climate change in Dubai. They start on Thursday, which is November 30th. Um, but the controversies surrounding this event are already coming to a bit of a boiling point. Um, Tess, what's the story here? Yeah, it's been a flurry of stories, I feel like, in the last few days. Um, but one of the big ones is that it's been revealed that uh, the COP28 president, the Sultan Al-Jaber, uh, who's also chief executive, it so happens, uh, of the Abu Dhabi national oil company Adnoc, planned to use his access to senior government officials uh, as basically um, an opportunity to increase exports of, of Adnoc's oil and gas. Um, and this was basically, this has come out in documents obtained and also published online, if you want to go and look at them for yourself, by journalists from the Centre for Climate Reporting working with the BBC. So yes, very eye-opening. Yes, it's almost not surprising, but it is still a bit of a shock given, you know, COP28. Um, what was actually in those documents? Well, so they include briefing notes prepared for Al-Shaber, uh, which include a series of proposed talking points that are out that outline that ADNOC is willing to jointly evaluate international liquefied natural gas opportunities in Mozambique, Canada and Australia. Um, and there are talking points for 13 other countries, um, including Germany and Egypt, suggesting Jaber tells their officials that ADNOC wants to work with their governments to develop fossil fuel projects. Uh, and it also shows um, the UAE preparing talking points on commercial opportunities for its state renewable energy company, Madstar, ahead of meetings with, with many countries, including the UK. But I think one of very interesting story or well, an interesting part of it that we found here on, on our team was um, that uh, the documents show that the UAE knew ahead of the time that any of us knew that the prime minister was planning a suite of net zero rollbacks, which we now all know about. And that includes the delay to the ban on the sale of petrol and diesel cars and plans to significantly weaken, um, you know, the phase out of uh, gas boil installations by 2035. So Abu Dhabi knew before the British public, which is <laughs> not, not ideal. No, not ideal. It also, you know, suggests a warring direction for oil and gas. Um, and I think we've seen that in some of the net zero rollbacks themselves. So again, it's one of those things that's not necessarily a surprise, but it is still a bit of a shock, isn't it? Mm. What has the reaction to this news been then, Pippa? Well, personally, my reaction is that it feels <laughs> very much like we're living in the film Don't Look Up, if anyone's seen that, by, oh, yes. <laughs> with Leonardo DiCaprio. But um, yeah, less about me. Um, <laughs> A policy coordinator at Greenpeace International, um, they said that if these allegations are true, that this is totally unacceptable and a real scandal. And their concern was that the COP28 leader should be focused on advancing climate solutions impartially and not backroom deals that are actually fueling this crisis. They said the dealings were exactly the conflict of interest that the group feared when the CEO of an oil company was appointed to the role. And do we have a response then from the Sultan himself? A COP28 spokesperson told the BBC that Algevere holds a number of positions alongside his role as the COP28 president and said that this is public knowledge, but private meetings are private and they said they do not comment on them. 
not private anymore. Sounds like they don't have freedom of information request legislation. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, you know, what about our government, which does have freedom of information requests? Have they addressed it? (laughs) Yeah, not through any FOI, though. So the energy department didn't directly comment. Uh, you may be surprised to hear, uh, but they said that they will continue to play a leadership role at COP28. And that includes working to triple global renewable energy deployment, as well as a clear commitment on phasing out unabated fossil fuels. Uh, They also said they will be working with all partners to push for ambitious outcomes at COP28 and keep the 1.5 degree temperature goal in reach. Let's just, I guess, hope that people still take the UK seriously at the COP28 negotiations. Yes, let's hope. Let's keep that 1.5 alive. Um, just very quickly, because it's been quite a big news section this week, but given, you know, negotiations are going to be kicking off, um, are you able to give us a very quick overview of what to expect from COP28 and what we should be looking out for? Well, oil and gas obviously are going to be the big thing, particularly as this big all these scandals coming out just ahead of it, uh, but also getting money into the loss and damage fund, I think is going to be quite a big part of this year's summit. It's also going to be the first review of countries' progress towards the Paris Agreement, uh, that landmark international treaty on limiting carbon emissions signed almost eight years ago now. Um, there'll be lots of other, you know, there'll be days looking at kind of nature and land and oceans, but it's going to be oil and gas. And are people going to, are they going to talk about phasing out fossil fuels or not it will be seen it is now time for our moment of the week where we discuss some of our standout newsy moments that are hopefully slightly more cheerful uh, than some of the more serious news elements pippa do you want to start us off so my moment of the week is an advert with olivia coleman or oblivia coal mine (laughs) where she poses as an oil executive to highlight the role of pension funds in fossil fuel projects um so it's not a very positive story but i think that the advert is really great and highlights a really big problem so i would recommend giving it a quick watch it's only a minute long we love that fun but still serious (laughs) tess Mine's also extremely serious. Um, So national highways have called on, so they say in a release they put out in the last week, um, three highly trained tail wagging sniffer dogs, and I have their names, Phoenix the Dutch Shepherd and Spaniels Nika and Nettle, uh, to root out the havoc wrecking weed, their own words, not mine, and to prevent it spreading. I think what the dogs do is they help by detecting the rhizomes, the underground parts of the plants, like the roots and the bulbs and shoots, and then these get removed, preventing any spread or regrowth. And Japanese nutweed is a big problem for lots of kind of buildings and um, obviously national infrastructure, like roads. I love that oh, the wow. dog's called Nettle. That I know. feels really appropriate. Yeah. Nettle taking on the knotweed. That is great. I wouldn't mind a visit from the poor least. <laughs> Sorry, I was trying to think of a pun the whole time there. I'm not yeah. sure that was a very good You've one. got to leave it to the National Highways press team. I also didn't really pick a very good news story, but it's a very great news article. Um, it's by North Wales Live, and the headline is, The groovy rainbow beetle unique to Snowden that's no longer swinging like the 60s. (laughs) Great headline, but quite sad because the Snowden beetle is endangered, um, or as they describe it, vanishingly rare, um, and is moving further up the mountain with climate change thought to be the culprit. Um, And as the reporter points out, there's going to be a point where they can't move up the mountain anymore. If anyone is wondering what these beetles look like, they are described as tiny, flightless and really quite groovy. So I recommend searching for that article. Now for today's deep dive. 
Heather McFarlane, a senior project manager at the environmental charity FIDRA, has kindly agreed to come and chat to us about chemical regulation in the UK and why we need to get to the root of the plastic problem. She also brings us the latest from the UN Plastics Summit, which she attended in Kenya um, and has just come back from fresh from the plane. So I really appreciate you coming in after that. No problem. So let's start with the summit then, um, which saw delegates meet in Nairobi to chat about the details of potentially the first global treaty to tackle the pollution crisis. Is that right? Yes, it's focused on um, plastic pollution. And this is the third round of negotiations that has just finished. So it's called INC3 or INC3. Um, So the negotiations have finished for this round and will be going into another round of negotiations next year in Ottawa. Brilliant. And it ended on the 19th of November. So we're recording this um, a little bit earlier than you'll get to hear it. Um, But what happened is we don't have that treaty, isn't it? And, And why did it sort of end in a stalemate, do you know? Well, I think there's some cause for concern, but mostly I think we should be pleased that the treaty has got to a stage where uh, at least some options have been discussed. At the last round of negotiations, Inc. 2, um, there was no sort of opportunity to really get into the negotiations of the treaty itself, as it was mostly bound up in procedure for a few days. And I'm pleased to say at this Um, latest round of negotiations, it did get down into looking at some of the um, text that was, uh, it wasn't an initial draft, they had a zero draft of just something to get the negotiators thinking. And it did get to the stage where they were able to look at that text, the negotiators from member states were able to say, this is some of the different things that we would like to see. And then it did progress on as far as the facilitators and the secretariat being able to try and draw all of that together and put forward some options. So it does mean in the next round of negotiations, there is something to discuss and there is something to work on. But perhaps we haven't got um, as far as we would like in previous rounds to have been able to come up with a full final treaty. The aim of that is to have one ready though for next year. So we're still hopeful that something can be um, brought together that member states can agree on. Brilliant. And you mentioned um, that this this round was quite different from the others. I know that you attended um, quite a few of the days that the deliberations were held. Is that right? Yes, I wasn't there for the whole thing. And this was actually my first opportunity to go to um, negotiations. So it was a real eye-opener for me. Um, I was quite surprised at the number of discussions um, around whether primary plastic is a pollutant. Um, when you say primary plastic. Yeah, so primary plastic is often um, thought of as the plastic that um, is initially made um, mostly from virgin materials, but it could you could also say that there's um, bio-based materials as well. So whether it's fossil fuels or whether it's um, come from um, natural materials that's then been manipulated into plastic. So this primary plastic, so the form that it first appears in is um, pellets or nurdles. It can also be in uh, resin as well, but mostly it's in this solid form of flakes, powders or pellets. And I've brought some to show you, actually. So you can probably hear them in this glass jar. There you go. Feel free to have a look. Thank you. It's um, it's amazing actually seeing them like this because they're all very rounded. Yeah, they're, we often say that they're sort of about the size of a lentil um, and they're, 
if you imagine they're extruded um, like spaghetti and then chop up into little tiny pieces. Um, and this is essentially primary plastic. And that is a pollutant. Um, as you can see, that's been collected off a beach. So it's got bits of little bits of beach in there as well. Oh, wow. Um, and how do they collect these? Because they're so small. Yeah. So um, we run a project called the Great Nurdle Hunt. So that's another name for these pellets. And the nurdle hunters are volunteers who go to a local beach. We don't actually ask them to collect them because they're very, very difficult to pick up, as you can imagine. Mm. They're so small and separating them from the sand can be a challenge. But many of our nurdle hunters do like to collect them um, so that they can show them to people like yourself um, to see what the problem is. So this is primary plastic and it very much is a pollutant. As you can imagine, I was quite surprised to hear a number of discussions around whether primary plastic is a pollutant in the first place. And really, this is, I think, a, a tactic to say, don't look upstream, don't consider upstream measures, only consider downstream measures and think about plastic waste. So when you have something like nurdles, when you have something like plas these plastic pellets washing up on beaches, there's no way you can say that primary plastic isn't a pollutant. It absolutely is. And we're seeing these reach the environment because at each stage of the plastic supply chain, they're being lost. So it could be at the production site. It could be when those are handled um, multiple times, um, when they're transported or when they, these are converted into plastic products. So nearly all plastic is made out of these plastic pellets. And at each stage, uh, there might be some that are being lost. On top of that, we then sometimes have these big catastrophic spills and they could be off ships or off trucks or train derailments. And we've seen all of this happening in the last six months alone. So there's been um, recent, just last week actually came back to my inbox and, and we're getting reports of in France, bags of these things washing up on a beach. We had a train derailment a couple of months ago in America and we were compiling a report ahead of the Global Plastics Treaty on mapping this global plastic pellet supply chain. And as we were writing the report, we had kept having to update the figures because there was more spills being reported on all the time. So um, this isn't a, a freak incident. It's continual mishandling of this this material that is leading it to be pollution. And I think on your um, great Nell Hunt website, there is a figure, isn't there, that as many as 53 billion pellets um, could be entering our oceans every year just from the UK. Yeah. So in some of the, we published a report by Oracle environmental experts that looked at the scale of this problem globally to help inform these negotiations. And they managed to extrapolate some of the data around trade in plastic in primary forms and um, look at the estimates of losses that have come from reports from people like Unomia. And they have figured out that it could be um, over 445,000 tonnes of pellets being lost every single year. So that equates to about 22 um, trillion pellets that could be being lost in the environment each year. And um, the trends that industry are predicting is that they would like to see plastic um, production grow uh, even further. And if that was to happen, then that would be further pellets entering into the environment. So this is very much um, a growing problem if we have that production rise. So one of the things that um, many of the NGOs who were attending the negotiations were calling for is a reduction in production of plastic. 
So that was a big ask from many of the observers that were there. Uh, one of the things that we've been trying to say is we also need to make sure that we eliminate pellet loss. So we put in prevention measures um, at each stage of the supply chain that means that these things don't escape into the environment. And we're hoping, uh, well, I'm hoping that that's something that um, all of the member states could agree on because even if you produce these things, and we know that there's 144 countries around the world that import or export plastic in primary forms, um, you shouldn't be wanting to lose your raw material into the environment. So we think it's something that everybody can get around. Where I'm based in the Firth of Forth in Scotland, we have pellets washing up um, every day, and the recent storms have made that even worse. We're seeing more and more wash up. Um, but also I'm really conscious when I see those tankers going back and forth along the Firth of Forth that any of those could spill at any time. And we have um, some of globally important populations of seabirds there, for example, the gannet on Bass Rock. It's got its biggest um, biggest colony in the world on Bass Rock. And especially with the pressures of things like bird flu, they can't afford to have this pollution washing up on um, on their colony. So I'm really conscious of of that. And I think the UK um, needs to make sure that we're calling for um, a robust approach and an ambitious strategy and an ambitious treaty to make sure that we, we address this problem um, at home and um, internationally as well. Yes. And I think that is that sort of brings us back to the summit then, because I do know um, that a lot of campaigners have raised concerns about potential lobbying from sort of the gas and oil industries at the lobby, or in particular, those countries mm -hmm. that are oil producing nations such as Iran, Saudi Arabia and Russia. Um, when you were there, did that did that feel very rife? Did it feel like you were sort of being outnumbered by um, these oil groups? Um, there was certainly a lot of industry there. And um there was some analysis done by um, colleagues and other NGOs, and there were there were you know for each scientist that was there from the scientist coalition, for example, there was maybe three or four industry representatives. We could look at this positively and say that these are people that are coming because they want to um, solve plastic pollution, and we ran an event on how you could prevent pellet loss, and we did have some industry representatives in the room. As I said, I think this is something that industry mishandling these things, um, it should should and could be stopped quite easily with simple measures like training people of what to do if there's a spill so they don't just wash them down the drain, making sure there's equipment to keep your raw material, to keep your product in place and ending up where you want it to go. So I think that there was a, a large proportion of industry there. There was, uh, as I said, at the Scientist Coalition, um, and also a number of NGO observers. Um, but the negotiations themselves take place with the, the member states. So I think it's it's an interesting one. We do want to see industry involved. Um, however, they don't have a place at the negotiations. And I think having that clear line um, of making sure that the negotiations are between member states is really important. Um, so that the observers are observers, whether you're industry, NGO or from the science side, and that the negotiators have that space to make sure that they're coming to an agreement that we can all live with. 
So let's look more at the UK now then. So what what are we doing to tackle plastics here Mm -hmm. and is it enough? So my focus on is on this plastic pellet issue. And um, we have seen moves in the EU recently to introduce um, some legislation around this specific issue of pellets. And um, we haven't yet seen how the UK is looking to tackle this issue. There are a couple of things with the EU proposal that could do with being strengthened. It doesn't cover all actors in the supply chain. For example, um, SMEs haven't been, or small, medium um, enterprises haven't been um, included in, in the way that we would like. And we think this really needs to be seen like other health and safety issues, other environmental issues, is that you don't... Um, change the legislation depending on the size of the business this really does need to apply to all actors in the supply chain and this um eu measure that you're talking about is that the um unintended plastics sort of ban that's been put forward or yeah so there's a lot of complicated uh, nomenclature around plastics of um unintentionally added intentionally added that can be a bit of a distraction these plastic pellets are made in pellet form already I would say they are being unintentionally lost, um, but a more accurate description might be mishandled, um, that these are being poorly managed. Um, It's mismanagement of this material that is leading them to being lost into the environment. So they are intentionally made as microplastics already. As you've seen, they're really small. um, And this can mean that they um, enter into... Uh, wildlife who mistake them for fish eggs, for example, because they look really similar um, and they can easily be taken up uh, into into the digestive system. It's also, they're really, really problematic because they are, you know, little packets of chemicals. Mm. Um, So they have the additives that you need for that plastic product already in them. Um, They are also contaminated with biological and chemical contaminants onto their surface. Yes, because we've seen that um, it can act as sort of um, a vector, can't it, for these diseases? That's right. So E. coli has been found on these pellets. So it's another reason why we don't necessarily ask people to collect them. And if you do handle them, to wear gloves. So that's why I didn't didn't (laughs) give them to you and get them out of the jar. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But they are are a real problem. So I think... Um, the EU proposals are it could do with being strengthened. And then here in the UK, um, I'll be interested to see whether this sparks conversations about what we might want to do here, because um, so far there hasn't been any equivalent legislation or discussions. We have heard that they are wanting to do a microplastic study um, to look into this issue further. But I think there's already a lot of evidence out there um, about the issue of of plastic pollution, um, particularly for pellets, you know we've um, got ten years worth of data from the Nerdle Hunt showing how widespread this issue is. We've done the mapping of the plastic pellet supply chain. There's been reports on the ways that it gets out into the environment, um, including one that's found that 95% of pellet loss could be avoided if we adopt this supply chain approach where each actor in the supply chain has mandatory measures that they have to follow to prevent pellet loss and then it's verified. 
And then this approach could mean that we greatly reduce the amount of pellets entering into the environment. So I think there's no reason why uh, the UK government needs to wait for a plastics treaty to happen before taking action on this. It can be done in advance of that. Um, And with any luck, we will have a strong plastics treaty that will require um, and mandate nations to bring in legislation. Um, But even if we don't, we can start on this right now. There's no reason why we have to wait for the treaty to come through. And I think this sort of this brings up this other theme that we've found um, with other aspects of regulation, haven't we, since the UK has left the EU, because obviously that left us, you know, with a lot to work out, I guess, legislatively. Um, So... Can we talk a bit more about chemical regulation in the UK then since Brexit? Um, we have a new framework here that we work under called UK Reach, based on EU Reach. Um, but for those not familiar with this area, could you explain a bit more about what UK Reach actually is? Yeah, so UK Reach is supposed to be the regulation that protects um, our health and environment from chemicals. And it works by um, registering chemicals before they go onto the market. Um, and then also evaluating those chemicals and assessing the risks and bringing in restrictions or authorizations onto those chemicals. So um, a restriction would be um, for um, a chemical if it was found to be a chemical of concern and an authorization might be, okay, well, we really need to use it for this one specific use and these are the things we will do to make sure it doesn't escape and end up where it shouldn't. So it's supposed to cover all of that. Um, and it's now um, that we're doing it here in the UK. So there's EU reach and there's also UK reach. Um, and the UK reach is being run by HSE, the Health and Safety Executive. In terms of progress going forwards on the UK reach, we haven't actually seen the programme for 2023 to 2024 yet, have we? That's right. So it's a bit of a the mystery of the missing work programme. So this was... <laughs> Uh, a work programme is supposed to be setting out what is going to be happening with UK REACH from April 2023 until March 2024. We're sat here towards the end of November in 2023 and we haven't seen the work programme that we're supposed to be nine months into. So that's a concern for a number of reasons. Um, Presumably work is going on within DEFRA and HSE Um, but it's not open and transparent about what is on the work programme and what the priorities are. And I think this isn't just a concern for NGOs. It's also industry have said time and again that they really like to know as far in advance as possible of what is going to be coming down the pipeline, what issues the government is looking at, and that helps them forward plan. So they're also wondering, you know, what are the priorities for government and what will they be working on in the at the moment and in the coming year? And really, we should be getting work programmes, you know, at least a month or so in advance of when it's yeah. due to start rather than nine months after it was due to start. And we're still waiting. So we haven't seen that work programme yet. I think the other thing that's missing is this chemical strategy that's supposed to sit on top of this and help guide the work program (laughs) the elusive chemical strategy that keeps being pushed further and further into the future yeah so it was first first um announced that there was going to be a chemical strategy following the environment plan in, in in 2018 so it's been a long time coming and i think that is another another area that we would really like to 
see addressed. And we're hoping that there will be an ambitious chemical strategy and NGOs have worked together to come up with 12 kiosks for this chemical strategy from a health and environmental perspective of what we think it needs to include to make sure health and environment is is adequately addressed. Um, but we haven't seen it yet. And without that, it it's hard to see where the priorities are. It's hard to see what our approach is going to be to addressing this issue because chemical pollution in the UK is at a critical point. It feels like every few weeks there's another report saying that there's very high levels of PFAS um, in in water or that we've got um, impacts of chemical pollution being felt by wildlife. It's recognised as one of the five key drivers of species loss. But it's also a concern for consumers um, that if chemical uh, chemicals are getting into consumer products that may be uh, banned in the EU, that the that here in the UK we could become a, a bit of a dumping ground for products that that are deemed unsafe for an EU citizen, but here in the UK the public could be exposed to it. So I think there's um, the, there is this need for a chemical strategy that sets out and the direction and our approaches, and we're really hoping for things like the circular economy to be considered. So making sure that recycled materials are safe, and that means that we have to take harmful chemicals out of the mm. initial product so that they don't end up at the at the end of life um, into a new material where it shouldn't be. And we need that traceability and transparency of the chemicals that are in things. Um, and, and of course, we need to restrict the most harmful chemicals. And that's one of the, the sort of basic functions of, of REACH, that as yet, we're not seeing that many restrictions come through. Um, mm. And without this work program reassuring us that they're there, these restrictions are coming, it r- remains a real concern and frustration that we haven't haven't seen those restrictions progressing. I always think it's interesting when we talk about this because that's something that's a concern to everyone because everyone is affected by these issues. Mm. Um, but because of the language surrounding it being quite complex and because government hasn't sort of given a clear direction, I think a lot of people don't really know, you know, the, the concern, the growing concern, mm. um, that we are, we are feeling because we're wondering where all these regulations are. Mm. I mean, looking then towards what the EU is doing, do you think in some ways we're falling behind? Um, In terms of restrictions being progressed, I think we are starting to fall behind. Um, The EU is progressing more restrictions than we are in the UK. We're still waiting for a restriction proposal to come through on PFAS and firefighting foams. Quickly as well, because we mentioned this earlier, um, PFAS is sort of this group of maybe 10,000 chemicals mm. um, that have very strong carbon fluorine bonds, I understand. Yeah. So they, they take a long time to break down in the environment and we're mm. only now sort of learning the harms of these despite them being in mm. so many products from non-stick pans to, you know. Yes, yeah, so that's right. So these are, are very persistent chemicals. Um, so they're, they are building up in our environment all the time as we continue to use them. And uh, they're often called forever chemicals because of this this persistence and going back to that sort of awareness point I think there is a growing awareness of this issue we've heard um that you know the past president of the Royal Society of Chemistry saying it's like the third big crisis we've got species loss we've got the climate emergency and we've got chemical pollution there was a really good paper last year um 
published by ACS, the American Chemical Society, that was talking about novel entities. And by novel entities, they mean um, plastic and chemical pollution, essentially, and saying we've we've passed the planetary boundary for this. We're outside the safe operating space for our planet. So here in the UK, we know that we've got polluted waters. We've got the um, IPBS, who who are the um, biodiversity, the equivalent of like IPCC, but for biodiversity. So we've got the International Panel on Biodiversity saying it's a key driver of biodiversity loss. We've got chemists saying this is a, a huge issue. Chemical pollution is a huge global issue. It's a huge issue here in the UK. And I think we are starting to see people become more concerned about it. And um, as as we were sort of saying just before, there seems to be more reports coming out. People are worried about um, the quality of their drinking water, of their local rivers, of their um, environment. We've recently launched a project on um, the use of sewage sludge on in agriculture. Oh, yeah, so that causes problems, doesn't it? That's right. So it's another route into the environment for chemical pollution um, and for plastic pollution as well. And there's been a lot of attention, quite rightly so, on sewage entering into our water. But once sewage is uh, treated, it then can be applied onto agricultural land, but it will still have many of the chemical and plastic contaminants in it. So it's going straight back into the environment via a different route. So these issues, I think, are getting a little bit more attention. Um, but yeah, you're right; they're not they're not there yet, and it is complex when you get to the point where you're trying to restrict a chemical and trying to um, make sure that chemicals that um, are harmful to human health or to the environment don't make it onto the UK market. And until we have this robust system. Um, for registering chemicals, for assessing them, and that that can keep pace with a huge number of chemicals that are out there, um, we're going to start to really struggle um, to keep up and to manage this this chemical pollution um, issue that we have here. Thank you. That rounds up this episode of the Eco Chamber podcast. Thank you to Pippa, Tess, and Heather. You can get all the details about the topics we've covered at theendsreport.com and we're also on Twitter and LinkedIn, so please do get in touch. Until next time, goodbye.